morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. I have Erica Hill by my side. Good morning. Good morning. We have a lot of news to get to. Let's start with five things to know for this Wednesday, July 26th. Happening this morning, Hunter Biden heads to federal court to plead guilty to tax misdemeanors and resolve a felony gun charge. In a last-minute twist, though, House Republicans are trying to block the deal that needs a judge's approval over what they say is political interference. A major blow to President Biden, a federal judge, has blocked his asylum policy. So the measure was meant to curb illegal crossings after a Trump-era immigration rule ended, the administration vowing to fight this ruling. LeBron James's son, Bronny, is in stable condition this morning after suffering cardiac arrest during basketball practice. We're told he is out of the ICU. Ocean waters like a hot tub off the coast of southern Florida. A buoy near Manus Bay registered 101 degrees. That's how hot the water was. That's taking a toll on coral. And gearing up for game time tonight, the U.S. women's soccer team is facing off of the Netherlands in their second World Cup match. CNN This Morning starts right now. where we begin this hour just hours from now the president's son will walk into a federal courtroom and plead guilty to tax crimes this is part of a contentious deal with prosecutors this is a live look at that courthouse in wilmington delaware where hunter biden's plea hearing is scheduled for 10 a.m eastern time this morning he could finally see the end of a years-long investigation that started during the trump investigation but it has been surrounded by political drama house republicans have accused prosecutors of giving him a sweetheart deal Just days ago, IRS whistleblowers who worked on that case were brought in to testify on Capitol Hill. Now, they claimed there was political interference by the Justice Department, by officials there, and also that Hunter Biden received special treatment. That is something the DOJ has strongly denied. The U.S. attorney in Delaware in our investigation was constantly hamstrung, limited, and marginalized by DOJ officials, as well as other U.S. attorneys. At every stage, decisions were made that benefited the subject of this investigation. DOJ slow walk steps to include interviews, serving document requests, and executing search warrants. So you hear those allegations there. Meantime, this bizarre new twist overnight. The judge is now accusing one of Hunter Biden's lawyers, a member of that legal team, of calling the clerk's office and lying about who she was in order to get some court filings removed. Hunter Biden's legal team says this was all a misunderstanding. Kara Scannell is live outside that courthouse in Wilmington, Delaware, for us this morning. So uh, a lot to get through, some unexpected overnight. What can we expect today, Kara? Yeah, good morning, Erica and Poppy. So this morning, we expect Hunter Biden to arrive just before his 10 a.m. court appearance. And as you say, he will plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors. That's for failing to pay taxes on more than one and a half million dollars in income in 2017 and 2018. And he will also resolve that felony gun possession charge. That charge could carry a sentence of as much as 10 years in prison. But he struck a deal with prosecutors where it will be diverted, meaning that if he agrees to certain conditions set by the court, he will not serve any prison time. And that is for possessing a gun while um, addicted to a controlled substance, and he's been very public about his addiction problems. Now, this will all take place before uh, Judge Mary Ellen Norica. She is a Trump appointee, someone that was unanimously confirmed by the Senate, and a longtime attorney here in Wilmington. So she will oversee this plea hearing. Um, the prosecutors are expected to go through the elements of these crimes. She will have an opportunity to ask Hunter Biden questions, so we may hear a little bit from him today in court as he answers qu- her questions 
questions about what he did, uh, and he admits to the guilt of this crime, entering this plea of guilty. Uh, now, we may also learn from prosecutors or potentially Hunter Biden's team some more details about this plea agreement. Now, our sources tell us that prosecutors have agreed to recommend a sentence of probation for those tax misdemeanor charges. Each of those charges could carry a prison sentence of up to 12 months in prison. And as you say, this could potentially resolve this five-year running investigation into Hunter Biden's finances. Uh, a long time coming here, but it certainly doesn't resolve a lot of the political uh, issues, as you were you know, mentioning there, with their um, house interest in this, uh, in Hunter Biden and the DOJ investigation. You know, but in a year of first, this will be the first time an American president's son has right. pleaded guilty to crimes. Erica, Poppy? It, it also would be rare, Kara, for the judge not to sign off on this, right? But a Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee is coming in last minute and saying, look, we want you to consider this testimony last week from those two IRS whistleblowers before you make this decision. Is there a chance the judge does not give this the green light? I mean, this always before the judge, but usually they do honor an agreement reached between prosecutors and the defense attorneys. It doesn't mean that she won't ask questions about it today. But interestingly, the House did make this move, asking the judge if they could file briefs to encourage her to consider mm -hmm. the whistleblower's testimony. Now, she hasn't decided whether or not she will hear from them. That's something that has kind of been held up by this uh, twist, as you said, overnight, where Hunter Biden's lawyers uh, are being accused of telling the clerk's office here that they were part of the House Republicans team in trying to get them to take down some documents that they said contained some sensitive information about Hunter Biden. So the judge asking them to explain what had happened in a filing overnight, Biden's lawyer said that this was a misunderstanding, but the judge has threatened that she could sanction them. So we might hear some additional back and forth about that and exactly what took place. Uh, and all of that could factor into the judges deciding whether she wants to hear more from the House Republicans or if she just wants to kind of neatly resolve that issue. Uh, but this will be entirely up to her to decide how she wants to handle that today. All in a first for the nation, as you said. Kara Scannell, thanks very much. Also, this new overnight, we learned that the special counsel's office, Jack Smith's team, has talked to two more key witnesses in its investigation and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The top election security official, who was fired by former President Trump, tells CNN that he has spoken with the special counsel investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the election. That is Chris Krebs. He was the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. He publicly rejected Trump's claims of widespread fraud, saying, quote, there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised, and then he was fired. And the New York Times is reporting that the former acting deputy attorney general, Richard Donahue, has also been interviewed by Jack Smith's team. He previously testified before the House January 6th committee that investigated the Capitol riot, and here's what he told them. You also noted that Mr. Rosen said to Mr. Trump, quote, DOJ can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election. How, how did the president respond to that, sir? He responded very quickly and said, essentially, uh, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm just asking you to do is just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Meanwhile, Trump told reporters in New Orleans last night he's not worried about facing charges. You don't have the guy who's concerned about uh, I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned. We have a, we're legit. We have very corrupt people running our country. If he is indicted on this probe, Trump's charges could include conspiracy to commit an offense or defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding, and tampering with a witness, victim, or informant.
LeBron James' son, Bronny, is out of the ICU this morning and in stable condition after suffering a cardiac arrest during basketball practice on Monday. That's according to a statement from a family spokesperson. Bronny James, who's 18, is an incoming freshman at the University of Southern California. CNN's Omar Jimenez is here with more for us. So what more do we know about how he's doing this morning and this, and this situation overall, Omar? Yeah, well, for, for starters, not much. I've been in touch with that family spokesperson. And the important part is that he's out of the ICU and appears to be in stable condition. Um, and they said they're going to have an update once they have more information here. Obviously, at the core of it, this is a, a family matter. But obviously, Bronny James was set to make his debut at USC this upcoming basketball season in the coming months, which could still happen. But at this point, there are still more questions than answers about what's ahead for Bronny. This is what Bronny James has been known for as of late. It's what made the son of LeBron James a McDonald's All-American and among the newest stars at the University of Southern California. But it was during a practice at USC that he suddenly had a cardiac arrest Monday morning, according to a family spokesperson. Medical staff was able to treat Bronny and take him to the hospital. He is now in stable condition and no longer in ICU. LeBron and Savannah wish to publicly send their deepest thanks and appreciation to the USC medical and athletic staff for their incredible work and dedication to the safety of their athletes. LeBron, a very visible figure throughout Bronny's journey to USC. It's really been such a constant companionship, not just as Bronny has grown up, but as LeBron has grown up into the athlete that we know him to be today. Reaction and concern from across the sports world has poured in. Magic Johnson wrote, we are praying and hoping he makes a full and speedy recovery. Jamar Hamlin, who suffered his own cardiac arrest during an NFL game in January, wrote something similar. Here for you guys, just like you have been for me. Shaquille O'Neal's son, Sharif, who battled a heart condition that sidelined him from basketball temporarily, reacted to the news on Instagram simply commenting, no, no. There's no evidence Bronny's situation is similar to his, but moving forward, there are still major questions surrounding what exactly happened to one of the brightest new stars in the game. Sudden cardiac arrest and death is rare in young competitive athletes, but these cases are tragic and they do occur. Um, there are nuances. We know that based off of sex, self-identified race, even sport type, uh, risk can differ among different athletes, but it is important to note that thankfully, these cases are uh, really quite rare. And while these cases are rare overall, this is actually the second time in two years USC basketball has had to deal with something like this. About a year ago, Vince uh, Iwachukwu, he was a forward uh, on the team, had a similar type of cardiac uh, arrest episode. Now he was treated and then months later able to return to the basketball court. So hopefully from a basketball perspective, that's what we see here. But obviously from a family perspective, there are a lot of decisions that James' family will likely have to make when it comes to long-term health about what the future looks like here. Yeah, absolutely. Omar, appreciate the update. Thank you. Let's bring in CNN medical analyst Dr. Jonathan Reiner. He is a professor of medicine and surgery at George Washington University. He is also board certified in cardiovascular disease and cardiology. You know everything there is to know about what this means. The fact that we've learned he's out of the ICU, he's in stable condition. What does that tell you, doctor, this morning? Well, it tells me the most important thing, which is uh, Bronnie James has survived what could have been a fatal event. Uh, the other day. And, you know, everything else that we talk about will pale in importance uh, compared to that. 
Uh, we don't know anything really about the cause of his cardiac arrest. We can talk about the most likely uh, things, but it sounds like he was treated incredibly promptly by uh, the medical staff at USC. And I say that because if he's out of the ICU, if he was discharged from the ICU in about 24 hours, that uh, means that he was treated very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And uh, my, my hat's off to the, the staff there who apparently saved his life. Wow. It, we were talking about this yesterday amongst the show team and, and even just talking about it with friends of mine who have kids around the same age. It can feel like we are hearing more and more about cardiac arrests with young athletes, teenagers, whether yeah. it's high school or whether it's college. I know technically the numbers are low, 100 to 150 deaths a year, but that's a young athlete dying every two to three days. Is there something more happening here? Are kids more active? Do we just know about it more? No, it's not happening more frequently, but the uh, prevalence and, and pervasiveness of social media uh, makes, mm. it, makes it seem that way. Uh, there are about, as you said, about 150 deaths of uh, athletes uh, in the United States every year. It does not look like that has changed. There are about 2,000 people under the age of 25 in this country who will die of a sudden cardiac arrest. So, you know, those numbers are uh, uh, seem large, but for the population as a whole, they're actually fairly low. Mm. But because these people often are incredibly healthy, uh, and are so young and vital. Every one of these events is tragic and, and a catastrophe, which is why it resonates. Every one of these losses resonates in the community. And when, you, when this occurs with a, a public persona, it, it seems to hurt even more. Mm. Once someone this age, at the height of health, right, in every other way, experiences something yeah. like this and comes so close to potential death, can they go back to living and operating the way they were, meaning can he, should he choose to play maybe at USC this season? Obviously, he could be eligible for the draft after the season. Can you get back to where you were yeah. in a safe way? Well, Poppy, that's going to depend on uh, the cause of, of this event. DeMar Hamlin's uh, event uh, six months ago was a you know, one-off, one in 10 million kind of event from a, a hit to his chest. For an, an athlete just playing in a, in a uh, practice game who suddenly has a cardiac arrest, that's typically a sign of something uh, more you know, long-lasting, a, a congenital problem either affecting the heart muscle or, or predisposing them to a cardiac arrhythmia. And those are lifelong risks. And many people who have a cardiac arrest uh, with the kind of circumstances that it appears that Bronnie James did, uh, many of those people will be at risk of another event going forward. Many of those folks will require a defibrillator, and it's hard to think uh, about the circumstances where somebody with a defibrillator would be playing in the NBA. Uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves because we really know nothing about the circumstances of the event, but the cardiac arrest is, a very, is very ominous. Mm -hmm. What matters most is that he survived, and you're right, that care, the immediate care he got, exactly. probably made all the difference. Dr. Reiner, thank you. More than 100 million people are now under heat alerts across the U.S. The extreme heat is also cooking the ocean, wiping out coral reefs in the Florida Keys. The water temperature there, it's more like a hot tub, topping 100 degrees. Also, to politics, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy again opening the door to a possible impeachment inquiry of President Biden. But on what grounds? We'll talk about that ahead.
So we have live pictures here for you of Phoenix, Las Vegas, and Miami this morning. And look at some of those numbers there. All of this heat really being felt, not only by the humans, you see the hospital-related, hospital heat-related visits, but also by Sea Life. 570 heat-related hospital visits uh, over the last week there in Arizona, in Nevada. 16 people have died because of the heat. And as we've been talking about here, along the Florida coast, the water feels like you're in a hot tub. In fact, a buoy in the Florida Keys measuring that water temperature as more than 101 degrees on Monday night. And if that reading holds, it would then be the hottest sea surface temperature ever recorded on planet Earth. So hot tub temperatures, by the way, we're not just throwing this around as fun. Those are typically set between 100 and 102 degrees. Meteorologist Derek Van Dam joining us live. So it feels like the heat records are breaking almost daily. This is exactly what you don't want to see. Erica, we have had over 5,000 heat records broken just in the past month alone. You can add another 180 to that through the weekend as the heat continues to build eastward. And places that you thought were shielded from the heat, at least they have been so far this summer, namely New York City, Philadelphia, Boston, well, you have heat advisories posted for tomorrow and into Friday. St. Louis, all the way to Minneapolis, you're also going to experience triple-digit heat. Check this out. This is the actual air temperature, Kansas City to St. Louis, 100 degrees today, but notice the reds shifting eastward, so we're going to impact places like Cleveland all the way to the nation's capital. This is also impacting the temperature of our waters, especially throughout the Gulf of Mexico. They're running roughly 3 to 7 degrees Fahrenheit above average, and as Erica and Poppy just mentioned, we have a potential world record set yesterday. If this verifies, this is a buoy in very shallow water just off the Florida coastline. That is just unprecedented, incredible. But this is also impacting a very fragile ecosystem, namely coral reefs. Remember, corals uh, provide a natural barrier between that and hurricanes, and they also provide billions of dollars in tourism to the state of Florida. So I went to Miami to talk to a reef restoration expert to talk about what they are doing in the site of this unprecedented marine heat wave. Take a listen. Reef restoration efforts that are ongoing right now are really taking steps to plan for climate change, to try to make sure that we restore reefs to be suitable for a future environment and not the victims of it. We've had a few pilot uh, experiments out there on the reefs that we've manipulated to try to make corals more thermally tolerant, and this will be a natural test of that. This is what bleached coral looks like, and it's uh, already occurring across much of the Florida Keys. Uh, if the heat stress does not abide or subside, I should say, the coral will continue to die off. That's what scientists are concerned about. And remember, uh, Erica and Pompey, the ocean absorbs about 90% of the excess heat associated with global warming. So we anticipate these marine heat waves to continue to uh, get worse over time. Now, you know, just down to the brass tacks here, this is sad. This is really difficult to see. Yeah, it is, and it can have far-reaching impact, right, because of all of the various 100%. ecosystems that are connected there in the water. Right. Derek Van Dam, appreciate it. Thank you. Also being impacted by climate change, fires. Right now, you've got fire crews battling wildfires, not only across the U.S. this morning, Arizona, 
New Mexico, each reporting nine fires in Oregon, six, Idaho, four, California, Colorado, Montana, Texas, and Washington state have at least one burning right now. And across the globe, Canadian officials are reporting more than 1,000 active fires. More than 600 are burning out of control. In Spain, a fire in Gran Canaria Island has forced the evacuation of hundreds of people. Deadly wildfires in Algeria have killed 34 people there. In Italy, you have crews battling 10 fires that are blamed for four deaths. And in southern Greece, we've been showing you these evacuations ongoing on several Greek islands as an emergency, state of emergency has been declared there. Also in Turkey, officials say more than 400 acres have burned in the south. The fire there still not contained. Well, he went from being wrongfully detained in Russia to fighting the Russian invasion in Ukraine. What we know this morning about Trevor Reed's condition after learning that he was injured fighting in Ukraine. That's next. And it could be a game changer for new moms. What brand new trial data is showing about the efficacy of a postpartum depression pill? This morning, Trevor Reed is recovering after being injured while fighting in Ukraine. The former U.S. Marine was wrongfully detained in Russia for nearly three years before being released in a prisoner swap in April of last year. A source telling CNN he was transported to a hospital in Kiev and then evacuated to Germany for medical care. The circumstances surrounding his injury in combat, not clear this morning. The Biden administration, for its part, is stressing Reed was, quote, not engaged in any activities on behalf of the U.S. government. His decision to fight in Ukraine also raising concerns about whether it might jeopardize negotiations aimed at freeing two Americans who remain wrongfully detained in Russia, Paul Whelan and Evan Gershkovich. Earlier this year, Caitlin Collins asked Reid what Gershkovich might be going through. This was just after the reporter was detained. The first few hours uh, when you're wrongfully detained are extremely confusing. Uh, you're in a state of shock. Unfortunately for me, that that kind of, you know, just surreal feeling lasted for for basically the whole almost three years that I was detained. Now, the U.S. has warned American citizens not to travel to Ukraine or join in the fighting, although many have done so anyway, including our next guest, Malcolm Nance, who is in Ukraine's International Legion, a band of foreign fighters who've bolstered the Ukrainian armed forces. It's good to have you with us this morning. I think your perspective here is so important. There's a lot we still don't know about Trevor Reed this morning. What prompted the decision? who he was fighting with. I know you've been doing some digging, talking to folks you know there in Ukraine. Any closer this morning to know who he was fighting with? Well, at this point, if he was evacuated to a hospital in Kyiv, that means he was fighting under contract with the Ukrainian army. The International Legion is an actual Ukrainian army battalion, series of battalions uh, that are attached to Ukrainian army brigades. So these are not mercenaries or just rogue foreign fighters at all. We are part of a network of uh, lawful combatants that are part, you know, members of the Ukrainian army. Mm -hmm. uh, for him to have been to Kiev shows that he was part of the hospital network that brought him out. So which unit he was assigned to specifically, we don't know at this time. So we should point out early in the war, I know President Zelensky had said, hey, if you want to come, we will supply the weapons. As we pointed out, the administration in the United States has said, look, we really do not advise this. You did go. We had reporting here at CNN early on in the war about who was showing up. There were former military officials, right? Former enlisted members. But then there were also, in many ways, sort of a ragtag group of Americans who were showing up saying, give me a gun. Where do things stand 
today. Are these fighters helping or hurting efforts in Ukraine? Yeah, well, first off, very early in the war, I mean, within the first two weeks of the war, a lot of people were showing up there. By the end of the first month, the International Legion had gotten its act together, certainly after the cruise missile attack when their training facility at Yavoriv, and we started weeding people out. Uh, they do uh, intensive background checks. Now you have to provide documentation as to your military service. Yes, some people who didn't have military service have leaked through. Some of them have performed admirably and actually heroically. But for the most part, we have very well-trained uh, people inside the battalions. There are no more freelancers. Uh, people just don't come to Ukraine anymore. The Ukrainians themselves are very aware that Russia could have been trying to infiltrate agents or uh, you know, pay contractors to come in and try to conduct intelligence operations. So the Ukrainians take every individual that come into the country very, very seriously. And it is not a free, nothing like it was in the first days. So to that, to that point, we should point out, we know Trevor Reed, a former Marine, you were a Navy cryptologist, right. you were a security expert. When you look at all of this, do you think he should have been there? Or does this raise security concerns for you about what could have happened if Trevor Reed was captured? Well, we always had those concerns. I mean, I worked for the Ministry of Defense Intelligence, uh, which is their major intelligence apparatus. And one of their chief concerns was that, you know, I was such a high profile person. I'd come from news media and had, you know, decades of U.S. intelligence experience about what would happen if you're captured. But, you know, when I went out to the battalions, uh, that was not the issue. The issue was providing uh, critical manpower, critical in, you know, information and fighting on the front lines. I've served behind Russian lines and last year's Kharkiv counteroffensive. So Trevor Reed would not have been considered, uh, you know, a, uh, a noteworthy person so long as he could uh, obey the laws of the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, follow the orders of Ukrainian officers and perform commendably while in combat. In terms of the concerns that have been raised about how this news could impact efforts to bring Paul Whelan and Evan Gershkovich home, do you agree that this could, in fact, complicate those matters? You know, in some way, when I was in the armed forces, I actually uh, ran a program which we called hostile government detention, uh, where we trained people in how to behave during the kind of detention that uh, Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan uh, and others were involved in. Russia is carrying out these abductions in their own country on the flimsiest of charges, strictly as leverage points against the United States. I don't think that this matters in the long run. When Russia does this, they have objectives that they want. They have spies in the West that they want returned, and they want to apply pressure to the United States. So it doesn't matter whether Trevor Reed would have fought or not. Russia and countries like that who carry out hostile government detention are going to do it anyway. Malcolm Nance, good to have your perspective. Appreciate it. Poppy? Fascinating conversation. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis shaking up and trimming down his campaign team in his race for the White House. We've got that new reporting ahead. And again, no one won the jackpot in the Mega Millions drawing. No one matched all six winning numbers. So now the jackpot for next Friday's drawing is 910 million bucks. It is the fifth largest jackpot in Mega Millions history. Go buy your ticket. Be right back. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has issued his most explicit threat yet on launching an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Listen to this. More of this continues to unravel. 
it rises to the level of impeachment inquiry, what that simply provides is that the American public has a right to know, and this allows Congress to get the information to be able to know the truth. McCarthy did acknowledge House Republicans have yet to bring evidence, a lot of evidence, over what they have alleged, which is that there is a connection between the president and his son Hunter's business dealings. President Biden was seen laughing off a question from reporters about McCarthy's impeachment inquiry threat. There he is. Let's talk about this and a lot more. CNN political analyst Coleman Hughes is with us and New York Times national political correspondent Shane Goldmacher. Good morning to you both. Thanks for being here, Shane. Let me just start with you. I mean, it's there was one impeachment in the first 200 years of this country, and now in the last you know, 25 years, we could potentially be looking at four. I think maybe the American people need to understand how significant this is to proceed with something like this. Maybe not just the American people, but the Congress, yeah. right? I mean, I think it's quite possible that Barack Obama becomes one of the last American presidents who doesn't get impeached when the opposing party takes over the Congress. Um, the possibility that Joe Biden was going to get impeached, I think, was was really great in the moment that Kevin McCarthy took control. The House Republicans have a desire to go after President Biden. And to some extent, this has been Kevin McCarthy holding the back and he's sort of letting the leash a little looser. They have a little bit more room to maneuver. Um, look, as he even said, this would be a process to potentially get to the truth versus saying he has the answers yet. If the moment they think they have that answer, I think they're going to proceed with an impeachment. And, um, you know, there's just a desire in the Republican conference to get there. And he has to deal with the fact that his majority hangs on a series of Republicans mm -hmm. who sit in districts that President Biden won. Um, our, our excellent Hill team of reporters, too, um, also reporting overnight that there has been this push from some top geo officials to go after the top brass, right? Let's leave the Let's forget about the cabinet members. Maybe let's forget about Merrick Garland. And instead, let's focus on President Biden now. How much of that do you think is also political timing? given that we are potentially waiting for another indictment facing former President Trump? Well, I'm sure that's not far from their minds. But the, you know, what was happening is there has been a steady drip of, of nothing directly damning yet on, on the president, but there has been a, a drip of you know, smoke, not yet fire. And uh, you know, we're, 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 we know now that there's an FBI document, that there's been a confidential source who certainly believes that the uh, Burisma executives thought they were paying the Bidens for something, right? That doesn't directly implicate Joe per se, but this is what people are seeing and they're thinking perhaps there's yet another shoe to drop and there may be something impeachable. Now, I don't think there is yet and there may never be. And, and the last thing to say about this, I think, is if we're talking about things from 2015, 2016, that would be the first time in American history that a president got impeached for something that was done before he took office. Mm -hmm. That would be setting a very strange precedent. In a vice president. That's right. Cassidy, you're talking yeah. about the 1023 FBI yeah. document, which we should note the FBI has made clear doesn't reflect the conclusions of their investigators. It's merely documenting information from whistleblowers, from others who come forward. So they may and have in other of, information. In that terms refused. of doing the, the, you know, the allegation that the president or son was doing the bidding uh, of Burisma to get Victor Shokin, the prosecutor, fired. I mean, that was a position in the State Department and a number of Western leaders that he was not effective and should go. Right, it, it was. But, it, you know, in, there are many situations where people can have a conflict of interest where they make a right decision that also happens to benefit them in some way. Right, we saw that there was always smoke around 
uh, Bill Clinton's decision to bomb the Al-Shifa factory? Did he do that to distract the public? There was speculation. And then the 9-11 Commission looked into it and they said it was above board. That could be what happens now. But the public should get to know, was there a conflict of interest in that decision made? As we look at everything and where we are right now, there's also a larger question, and we touched on this a little bit yesterday, about what isn't getting done when there is such a focus on impeachment. Do you envision any of that shifting in this Congress? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, I think that the, the reality of... question, Erica. <laughs> I mean, the reality of split government is they're not going to do a ton, right? And especially heading into an election year. Kevin McCarthy is really hamstrung between, again, those Republicans who sit in districts that Joe Biden won, districts where Joe Biden is popular, that's where his majority is built. And the desires of the vast majority of the rest of the party in his conference, which want to be more aggressive with the Biden administration, there haven't, there has not been a close relationship between the president and the White House and the Republican Congress, not just because of investigations, but just on, on any matter of negotiations. They're trying to avoid a government shutdown this fall more than any proactive legislation at this point. Um, Harvard-trained lawyer, governor of Florida, now um, presidential candidate Ron DeSantis, uh, said this about Trump's impeachments and any potential impeachment against Biden. Let's listen. You look at they impeach Trump for a phone call. Are you trying to tell me Biden's conduct isn't as significant as that? It's way more significant. So they are absolutely within their rights to do that. I think what the corruption that's surrounding this family is really unprecedented. He's talking. He said they impeach Trump just for a phone call. No. no. And by the way, it's only referring to one of the impeachments. They, they impeached Trump for a, a what was a pretty clear quid pro quo, find some dirt on my political opponent, and I'm withholding funds, right? Determining U.S. foreign policy based on something that really could only benefit him, right? That's a very clear case. What we're seeing with Biden right now is some suggestions that were, if more evidence, more direct damning evidence were to emerge, it might start approaching similarity, but we're nowhere near a comparison between these two situations right. yet. Speaking of the DeSantis campaign, you have some reporting, Shane, about uh, the, the, the layoffs, the firings that we have seen. Um, you saw that overnight. I was also struck by, in some of your reporting, noting a person close to the governor who still supports him told you that DeSantis had experienced some ch challenging learning curve that left him a little bit jarred. Yeah. Did he learn from the learning curve, I guess, is the question. I mean, that's really to be seen. He, he's made a series of changes in the last couple of weeks or announced some of them as a series of changes. The biggest of which is he's cutting his campaign staff. As of yesterday, he had laid off 38 people at a campaign that started with more than 90. Actually, I think the 90 number is almost more interesting because that's an enormous size for a candidate in a primary. It's double the size of former President Trump's campaign team. And so this is a downsizing that he needed to do because he did raise a lot of money. He actually raised the most money of any Republican in the field and in direct money and then spent so much <laughs> of it that he was on the kind of trajectory that looked in a bad direction. So this is a thing. If he wants to, to, to challenge Trump and have money to go on television, he can't be spending money on private planes, on fancy hotels and on staff in July of the year before the election. Does he also really quickly need to work on messaging, not just money? Uh, there's real questions about his messaging. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you both. Shane Coleman, good to have you. Appreciate it. Up next, what the Department of Education is now hoping to find as it investigates Harvard's admissions process. And officials say they have obtained a, quote, massive amount of material from the home of the suspect in the Gogo Beach serial killer. What exactly was recovered? We'll tell you ahead.
Harvard University under investigation this morning. The Department of Education is looking into whether the school's donor and legacy admissions practice is discriminatory. A group suing the school asked the department to investigate days after the Supreme Court gutted affirmative action in college admissions. CNN's Athena Jones is here. So give us a sense, how big of a role do legacy admissions play at Harvard? Well, they play a big role and too big a role, according to these three black and Latino groups that filed this suit, calling on Harvard to end this practice of preferential treatment for these legacy applicants. These are people who are related to donors or related to Harvard alumni, and they are way more likely to get in. These alumni, th these legacy applicants are overwhelmingly white, 70% white, and the Department of Education is going to be investigating whether these preferences violate Title VI of the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964 that prohibits discrimination based on race, color, or national origin in any program that receives federal money, which Harvard does. You know, Michael Kippens, who's a lawyer uh, for Lawyers for Civil Rights, which is the group that filed the claim on behalf of these three civil rights, uh, black and Latino groups, said this is exactly what they wanted to happen when they filed this complaint. They're getting exactly what they wanted. And this is important. Let's, re let's remind folks of the stunning statistics that were included in the lawsuit. They had a lot of data. That is, that is a graphic showing just how much, how big a part of each graduating class starting in 2022 uh, was made up by these legacy admissions, people related to donors or related to alumni. That's a huge uh, percentage. Uh, and we also know that if you're related to a donor, you're seven times more likely to get in mm -hmm. than an ordinary applicant, six times more likely to get in if you're related to alumni. And as I said, these, th these groups, of course, want this practice to end. They call it discriminatory. And they want Harvard to do what several other colleges have done. Uh, most recently, Wesleyan, this was just last week. Wesleyan said it was ending legacy uh, preferences. So have Johns Hopkins, Amherst, MIT, and Carnegie Mellon. Isn't, I, I want to know how Harvard's responding, but also at the crux of this, you, it's minority groups that are suing because largely, given the history of this country, the, don't, the biggest donors in the past and also legacy have been overwhelmingly white. Absolutely. The past preferences lead to the current situation. Yes. So I'm much less likely to have a parent who have gone to Harvard than someone who... Who, who else? Who, um, someone who is richer or, or white. 70% of these applicants have been white. And here is Harvard's uh, response in part from their spokesperson. They say they're reviewing aspects of their admissions policies. And they say, our review includes examination of a range of data and, and information, along with learnings from Harvard's efforts over the past decade to strengthen our ability to attract and support a diverse intellectual community that is, that is fundamental to our pursuit of academic excellence. And they say they're, they're, they're going to redouble their efforts to attract uh, students from all different backgrounds. But this is getting a lot of attention and it's going to continue yeah. to get a lot yeah. of attention. Yeah. It's about an equal, an equal playing field, yes. you know, to have that shot. Athena, thank you. Thanks. Another legal bruising for the Biden administration. A federal judge has blocked the president's asylum policy. What does this mean for migrants trying to cross the border? Last night by Lionel Messi in his second game with the team, the soccer superstar led Inter-Miami to a 4-0 win. 
Over Atlanta United, Messi Mania is playing into the soccer fever that's taking over America right now. It's about time, by the way. And tonight, <laughs> the U.S. women's national team takes the field for their second World Cup game in New Zealand. Andy Scholes joins us with more on all of this. It is about time. The rest of the world knew this. I was obsessed with <laughs> soccer, football, and now we're getting there. Yeah. Yeah, guys, what a time to be a soccer fan here in the U.S. You know, no team, women's or men's, has ever won three straight World Cups in the U.S. women's quest for history. Just taking place at an incredible time for soccer here in our country. You know, Messi has been nothing short of amazing since arriving to Miami. And a team that normally plays thousands of miles away has become a fan favorite here in the U.S. That pretty much sums it up. U.S. soccer fans are confident. I am predicting they absolutely three-peat. And ready to celebrate the World Cup's first ever back-to-back-to-back champion. But the team is not getting ahead of themselves as they prepare for a rematch of the 2019 championship game against the Netherlands. This is going to be an incredibly difficult matchup, um, very challenging. We know that we have to be at our best. The U.S. women's quest for history abroad happening at the same time as the greatest player ever, Lionel Messi, has taken his talents to South Beach. Messi! After a Hollywood debut where he scored the winning goal in front of the likes of LeBron, Serena, and Kim Kardashian, Messi following that up with two goals in the first 22 minutes Tuesday night, wowing the home crowd, leading Inter-Miami to a 4-0 win over Atlanta United. Messi mania completely taking over, selling out stadiums across the country. Prices are way up. They're up about 10 to 12 times what a normal MLS game would be selling for. We've never seen anything like this, to have the best player in the world come over in the prime of their career to play in America. There's never been anything like that. This latest soccer boom comes as many Americans have fallen in love with Wrexham, a British team thousands of miles away who are now an unlikely box office smash thanks to Deadpool actor Ryan Reynolds and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia's Rob McElhenney who purchased the team in 2020 and have invested $3.7 million into the club. Ahead of season two of their hit FX show, Welcome to Wrexham, the team is touring the U.S. after earning promotion to a higher league last season. People said at the beginning, why Wrexham? Why Wrexham? This exactly why Wrexham. And Reynolds and McElhenney are dreaming of even more. I love just hearing friends of mine, people that are, you know, some are in showbiz, some are not in showbiz, different walks of life, just saying the words, the word Wrexham now. Like, it's just a normal mm -hmm. part of the lexicon. I just think it's so cool. I get asked more about this than anything, anything in show business, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and amazing that a small town in Wales with a population of about 62,000 has become a household name in the U.S. And, you know, guys, we say every World Cup, soccer's just growing in popularity here. And it certainly is, whether, you know, it's the U.S. women, Messi, or Wrexham, there's so many fun storylines. And in 2026, we are hosting the Men's World Cup along with Mexico and Canada. And that is certainly going to be awesome. It is. My son is counting down to it. He's very oh, excited. Yeah. <laughs> Ted Lasso also helping just a little bit, too. A little bit. Just a little bit. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Oh, yeah. That was great. CNN This Morning continues right now.
Hunter Biden set to plead guilty to federal tax misdemeanors. Republicans are calling the plea deal a sweetheart deal. Prosecutors are expected to recommend no jail time, but obviously the judge here will have the final say. It's just going to be striking because of the magnitude of this moment. Trevor Reed, the former U.S. Marine who was freed from Russia in a prisoner swap, was just injured while fighting in Ukraine. Mr. Reed was not engaged in any activities on behalf of the U.S. government. There is deep concern within the administration about the potential effect of this because those negotiations are so difficult. Bronny James, the oldest son of NBA superstar LeBron, suffered a cardiac arrest while participating in a practice. He was released from the ICU very quickly. That's a really good sign. The basketball community right now is scared to death. So highly touted, a lot of endorsement deals, it seemed like everything was going his way. His father telling The Athletic he can play alongside his son, and now, of course, all of that may be affected by what happened. The Florida Keys are facing an unprecedented heat wave with ocean temperatures of 100 degrees, now threatening coral reefs. Corals around the world live very close to their maximum limit. They're really on the edge. If you add on El Nino and climate change and all these problems, it's scary for a lot of us. Police completing their search of Gilgo Beach murder suspect Rex Hureman's home after 12 days. The district attorney says investigators collected a massive amount of items. With regard to hair fibers, DNA, blood, we'll just have to await the results. Morning, everyone. As you can see, there is a lot going on this morning. We're glad you're with us on CNN this morning. And we begin here, a federal judge delivering a major blow to the Biden administration, blocking its new asylum policy. Border crossings have plummeted since the rollout of that controversial measure, which largely bars migrants who passed through another country from seeking asylum in the U.S. So the ruling itself is now on hold for 14 days. The DOJ says it does plan to appeal. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joining us now with more. So it's also, we should point out, another legal setback for President Biden. This one has some pretty serious implications. Walk us through that. That's right, Erica. The administration has been facing legal hurdles from both ends of the spectrum, from Republicans and from immigrant advocates. And it was the latter in this case who sued against this rule. It was immigrant advocates who put forward this lawsuit saying that the administration should not be using this asylum rule and likening it to one that was used under the Trump administration and similarly blocked. So again, what this does is that it largely bars migrants who transit through other countries to seek asylum asylum in the United States if they hadn't already tried to seek refuge elsewhere. And of course, there are many, if not all, migrants who come through different countries like Mexico and Guatemala to try to seek asylum in the United States. So it barred a lot of them from having that opportunity, marking a decades-long departure from a decades-long protocol. Now, the administration has continued to defend it, including after this ruling. Take a listen to what the White House press secretary said just yesterday. The Department of Justice will appeal uh, the decision and seek and extend uh, to extend the stay. And uh, as we have said multiple times, uh, our border enforcement plan works. It is deterrence, uh, it diplomacy and enforcement. We have seen we have seen uh, that plan working. Unlawful border crossing have come down to the lowest that we have seen in the past uh, two years. And so, again, nothing has changed. And as I said, the Department of Justice will, will appeal to extend that uh, to, to work to extend the stay. 
Now, as you heard there from the White House press secretary and what administration officials say is that the a policy had helped drive down the border numbers. Of course, it's one of many measures that they're using, but there's certainly anxiety as to what happened next. Now, this is on hold for 14 days. And in the interim, the Justice Department has already filed that appeal late yesterday afternoon. So now it's going to be what happens in the courts in the next few days. Will this uh, be in effect by the end of the month or not? This policy is similar to the Trump administration policy. It's something a lot of Democrats didn't like, and they criticized the Biden administration, Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, for this. And Mayorkas is going to go uh, before Congress today to testify after months of impeachment threats from Republicans against him. What do you think we're going to see? He is, and he's going to be in front of a key committee, the House Judiciary Committee, where impeachment would originate should House Republicans move forward with that. Now, he's going to be grilled on all of these issues relating to the U.S.-Mexico border. Of course, this has been an ongoing point of tension between Republicans and the Biden administration. And House Republicans have gradually tried to shore up their case for impeachment against Mayorkas with the House Homeland Security Committee already starting to roll out its report. Now, of course, there has been some hesitation as to whether or not they should move forward with this impeachment. But that certainly means that all the same, there's going to be fireworks at this hearing between House Republicans and the secretary over the handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. In fact, just yesterday afternoon, the chairman, Jim Jordan, sent a letter to DHS saying for him to be prepared with data on border arrests and deportation. So already setting the tone for what's going to be a fiery hearing. Yes, fiery it will definitely be. Priscilla, appreciate it. Thank you. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has issued his most explicit threat yet on launching an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. Listen. The more of this continues to unravel, it rises to the level of the impeachment inquiry. What that simply provides is that the American public has a right to know, and this allows Congress to get the information to be able to know the truth. President Biden was seen laughing off a question from a reporter about what McCarthy said about a potential impeachment inquiry. Lauren Fox joins us this morning again on Capitol Hill. Lauren, good morning. What do you know? Well, good morning, Poppy. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy continues to inch right up to opening that impeachment inquiry without actually formally announcing that he is doing it. And that's because he's still talking to his members behind closed doors. He had a meeting last night with leadership trying to emphasize the fact that opening an impeachment inquiry is different than voting on impeachment. His argument to members both behind closed doors and publicly is that an impeachment inquiry gives you more tools to get interviews, to seek information, to try and get some of those documents that Republicans want to get in order to make the case against Joe Biden. But of course, there is going to be some trepidation among some members who still don't know if there is a direct tie to be had between Hunter Biden's business dealings and the president himself. I don't know that we've made the case for a formal impeachment inquiry yet. But I do want the committee digging into this. I think the facts that we're seeing are alarming. The speaker's been clear. If, in, if in fact, we're uh, the facts dictate and the Constitution dictates that we go to an impeachment inquiry phase of the investigation, we'll do that. And, and the advantage of when you get to that point is it's easier to get the information. If it's not accountability now for the highest office holder in the land, when is it going to be? At the end of the day, he will be impeached. 
And of course, there are some members who won in Biden districts who are running for re-election in swing districts, like David Valadeo, who I talked to last night. And when he was pressed on whether or not this was good for his re-election, he bluntly said, I don't know yet. And that is because there is still so much more to unfold ahead. And until an actual impeachment inquiry is opened, it's hard to know how this will play out. We should note that House Republicans are expected to gather for a conference meeting today off campus at 9 a.m. The expectation is that this, of course, could come up, despite the fact that they have a number of other issues to address, including the fact that, Poppy, the government runs out of funding at the end of September. Poppy. There's that. Lauren Fox, thanks. Well, in just a matter of hours, Hunter Biden will be in court in Delaware, where he is expected to plead guilty to two federal tax misdemeanors. Ultimately, though, the judge, of course, will have the final word on sentencing. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, of course, also a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, is with us now. So walk us through, Ellie, first of all, the charges and what we can expect to see in court today. Yeah, Eric, a lot of drama around this case. So let's focus on the facts that we know for sure. Hunter Biden is expected to plead guilty today, first of all, to two counts of willful failure to pay income taxes. The allegation is that in each of 2017, 2018, he made $1.5 million in income and he owed but did not pay in excess of $100,000 in taxes. We don't know how much in excess, just more. This word's really important, willful. That means it was not an accident or an oversight. He knew what he was doing. He did it on purpose. I should say some tax cases are handled as felonies. That's more serious. This is a misdemeanor. The agreement that Hunter Biden has with prosecutors is if he pleads guilty, his sentence should be probation, no jail time. But other tax cases, I should say, are handled less seriously as civil cases, not even criminal at all. This is somewhere in between. Hunter Biden also is charged with a sort of obscure, not never used, but rarely used firearms charge that says a person who's addicted to drugs or alcohol, cannot possess a firearm. Now, the deal is he doesn't have to plead guilty to that. If he stays straight, it will be diverted. It will be dismissed. Again, some firearms cases, most firearms cases result in jail time. But this particular statute is almost never actually charged against anyone in the federal system. Now, what's going to happen today? The judge is going to ask Hunter Biden, do you understand all the rights you're giving up? You have a right to a jury trial. You have a right not to incriminate yourself. You'll be giving those up. He will say yes. Then he will have to allocute, meaning he will have to say under oath in court, I'm guilty. Here's exactly what I did that makes me guilty. And then the important thing to watch for, the judge has to accept this deal. The vast majority of times when you have a deal between a defendant and the government, it will be accepted. But there is some discretion here with the judge. So and in terms of the discretion, this is also bringing up sort of these late night Tuesday issues that have now reared their head. So there's some controversy here. Yeah. Uh, first being these claims made by IRS whistleblowers. So this is going to impact things. They're saying, hold on a minute here. This was handled a little differently. Yeah, so two of the IRS agents who worked on this case have testified in front of Congress. And the gist of what they've said is that the U.S. attorney here was constantly hamstrung, limited, and marginalized by DOJ. They said basically mm -hmm. he was held back from doing this case fully. Now, let's look at the U.S. attorney, David Weiss. He was a longtime federal prosecutor, served under administrations of both parties. He is a Trump nominee, got this job in 2018 with the support, I should note, of both of Delaware's Democratic U.S. senators and Joe Biden, President Biden, when he took over in 2021, left David Weiss in place. Now, Weiss has somewhat responded to these allegations. He has written a letter to Congress saying, I have been granted ultimate authority over this matter. So he said, I was in charge. But the question is, did he head off any avenues of investigation? Which brings up this. These are the questions that ultimately David Weiss, we now know, has agreed to testify in front of Congress. And I think the question is, first of all, 
why did this take five years? Yes. This is not I know you've been year. asking this for a long time. Absolutely not a five-year investigation. Was this slow play? Did he, in fact, have unfettered authority? He said he did. But separately, were there any investigative avenues that were cut off? And that's the most important allegation that the IRS whistleblowers have made that has not yet been addressed. The other thing I want to ask you about is we've learned that former, a couple of former Trump administration officials have now met with the, with the special counsel yes. about Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. So we're talking about Chris Krebs, Richard Don, uh, Donahue. When you see the fact that we now know they have met with the special counsel, what does this tell you? Once again, Erica, this goes to intent. Chris Krebs, of course, was in charge of cybersecurity. He said publicly this election was secure. Then, then he was fired. fired. That's why they want to talk to him. Richard Donahue's really important. He was a high-ranking DOJ official. And he let's remember what he testified when he went in front of the January 6th committee. Let's take a quick listen to that. You also noted that Mr. Rosen said to Mr. Trump, quote, DOJ can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election. How, how did the president respond to that, sir? He responded very quickly and said, essentially, uh, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm just asking you to do is just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. And Richard Donahue has a handwritten note to that effect from when he got that statement from the president. That's really important to prosecutors. All right, we're watching all this. Ellie, appreciate it as always. Thank you. Poppy? This just in, Rudy Giuliani is conceding, this isn't a court filing, that he made defamatory statements about two Atlanta-area election workers. Giuliani, Giuliani made the concession in an effort to resolve a lawsuit against him brought by Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss. You'll remember them. Former President Trump and his then-personal attorney, Giuliani, targeted says Giuliani targeted them after the 2020 election by tweeting this surveillance video insinuating wrongdoing. Giuliani also repeated the lies when he answered questions by the January 6th committee. Ruby Freeman and Shay Freeman Morris and one other gentleman quite obviously surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious to anyone who's a criminal investigator or prosecutor, they are engaged in surreptitious illegal activity again that day. Freeman and Moss also testified before the committee on the toll that those statements by Giuliani, false statements he's now conceding, had on their lives. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security all because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay. I don't want to go anywhere. I second guess everything that I do. Um, it's affecting my life in a, in a major way, in every way, all because of lies. CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polans is with us. You know, I was just thinking that was some of the most compelling, memorable testimony that that entire uh, committee and the public heard. And now Giuliani is conceding what he said wasn't true. 
Yeah, well, Pavi, this is a really unusual and a very legally tricky move that Giuliani is trying to make here in court. Essentially, he's trying to make this lawsuit from Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, where they accuse him of defaming them. He's trying to make it go away. And the way he's doing that is that he's conceding that, yes, he did make these false statements about these women after the 2020 election. He's also saying that he acknowledges that those statements can be defamatory, that they were defamatory, but he's trying to avoid his own accountability here by saying in this court filing late last night that his statements uh, mean that he shouldn't necessarily have to pay damages to them because he his statements alone might not be what was hurting these women. And also, he's trying to say that what he was saying after the 2020 election is still protected speech, First Amendment constitutionally protected speech. Now, this is, a, like I said, a highly unusual filing, and it's the type of filing I have never seen before in a civil lawsuit. Uh, it's normally the sort of thing you might try and do in a criminal context, but this is a lawsuit he's facing, and so a judge has to look at this now. She has to determine whether sh this is going to be an acceptable way to resolve this lawsuit. And also, I've reached out to the lawyer for uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss to see if it's acceptable to them as well. They had tried to make some sort of settlement with Giuliani before, uh, and it didn't amount to anything. And so how this actually factors in here at a time where Giuliani is facing a lot of possibilities uh, himself, a lot of risk with this lawsuit, how it resolves that is really unclear. And, and does it factor into the special counsel's investigation? We know from the reporting that you guys had yesterday that they now have all of these Giuliani documents. Yeah, I mean, that is going to be the question going forward here, because what he's doing in this filing, like I said, it's in a civil <clears throat> lawsuit. And so he keeps writing that he's can, making these concessions about making these statements, making these defamatory statements, making false statements about the 2020 election for the purposes of this litigation. So he's trying to confine it just to this case. What it means to the special counsel is really going to be something that the prosecutors will have to decide. And of course, not only do they have all those documents from his uh, close colleague, Bernie Carrick, they also have sat down with Rudy Giuliani as investigators uh, looking into criminal activity around the 2020 election. He spoke to them twice, and we just don't know what he told them or how that conversation went about what was said in Georgia and what Giuliani specifically was saying about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss after the 2020 election. Caitlin Pollan, thank you so much for the reporting. Ellie Honig is with us. Thoughts? Well, he's Rudy Giuliani is trying to cut his losses here. It is, as Caitlin said, remarkable to see someone in a defamation lawsuit admit, yes, what I said was false. This is one of his most despicable, over-the-top lies. What he seems to be trying to do is limit this to this question of, was it constitutionally protected speech? You have a lot of range when it comes to First Amendment political speech, but I cannot even conceive of how you justify attacking innocent civilian poll workers falsely like this. So so that further, that, that he said it right, he wants to be protected, but he won't concede that these statements actually caused damages. Yeah. That's where that's falling under, right? Hey, you can't prove that what I said actually made your life a living hell, even if you said it. Right. Even though their lives were made living hells, he's going to blame other people. He's going to say, well, other people sort of said similar things about you and jumped on the bandwagon. I mean, this is a sort of desperate last, last second gasp to try to limit his own liability here. It's, a, it's really an astonishing concession by Rudy.
Ellie, thank you. See if it works. Yeah, Ellie, thanks. LeBron James's son this morning is in stable condition after he collapsed and suffered cardiac arrest during basketball practice. Dr. Sanjay Gupta here to explain what may have happened. And we're now learning the U.S. Marine veteran who was released by Russia in a prisoner swap last year had made his way to Ukraine to fight in the war there. He's now been evacuated after being wounded on the battlefield. What we know about his condition ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, Bronny James, the eldest son of NBA star LeBron James, is recovering after studying, suffering a cardiac arrest on Tuesday. He was rushed to the hospital by ambulance. This is after he lost consciousness. It happened at basketball practice at the University of Southern California. <clears throat> His family says the 18-year-old is now in stable condition. He is no longer in the ICU. Santa's Omar Jimenez joining us now with more. Um, has the family spoken at all yet about what they think may have caused this cardiac arrest. At this point, they haven't. That's, of course, the major question here, because depending on what happens could implicate the future, mm -hmm. of course, of Bronny, who's been this bright young star, not to met, completely aside from the fact that he's the son of LeBron James, because as they screen, if this turns out it was some sort of condition that obviously has longer implications, or if there was, this was something that was very acute. We've seen players come back from this before, but right now, there are more questions than answers as to the future of Bronny James. This is what Bronny James has been known for as of late. It's what made the son of LeBron James a McDonald's All-American and among the newest stars at the University of Southern California. But it was during a practice at USC that he suddenly had a cardiac arrest Monday morning according to a family spokesperson. Medical staff was able to treat Bronny and take him to the hospital. He is now in stable condition and no longer in ICU. LeBron and Savannah wish to publicly send their deepest thanks and appreciation to the USC medical and athletic staff for their incredible work and dedication to the safety of their athletes. LeBron, a very visible figure throughout Bronny's journey to USC. It's really been such a constant companionship, not just as Bronny has grown up, but as LeBron has grown up into the athlete that we know him to be today. Reaction and concern from across the sports world has poured in. Magic Johnson wrote, we are praying and hoping he makes a full and speedy recovery. Jamar Hamlin, who suffered his own cardiac arrest during an NFL game in January, wrote something similar. Here for you guys, just like you have been for me. Shaquille O'Neal's son, Sharif, who battled a heart condition that sidelined him from basketball temporarily, reacted to the news on Instagram simply commenting, no, no. There's no evidence Bronny's situation is similar to his, but moving forward, there are still major questions surrounding what exactly happened to one of the brightest new stars in the game. Sudden cardiac arrest and death is rare in young competitive athletes, but these cases are tragic and they do occur. Um, there are nuances. We know that based off of sex, self-identified race, even sport type, uh, risk can differ among different athletes. But it is important to note that, thankfully, these cases are uh, really quite rare. Now, as rare as they are, this is actually the second time in as many years at USC, with USC basketball, that they've dealt with something like this. About a year ago, Vince Iwuchukwu, who's a forward on the team suffered a cardiac arrest and now he was treated and months later he was able to make a comeback. So from a basketball perspective, I think there are a lot of people that, that are hoping that 
that can happen here yeah. as well. But obviously, with so little information, this is also a family decision on potentially what the long-term health implications mm-hmm. are here, and we're just going to have to see what those are. Yeah, absolutely. Omar, I appreciate it. Thank you. Of course. Let's bring in CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, good morning. Uh, obviously, we all think about you and your coverage of Damar Hamlin. wasn't that long ago. Different circumstance here. But now you have another young athlete at the prime of health, right? And this happens. We know it's rare. The question now is why, right? That, that, that's right. And, you know, I think that that's what's probably happening in the hospital now. We know that he was in the intensive care unit because obviously uh, right after a cardiac arrest, they wanted to make sure he was stabilized. But they were able to quickly do that. And now it is, as you say, the question of trying to figure out what happened here. Some context, you know, going back to a study from 2015, um, we know that, again, rare, but just to give you some numbers, about six to 7,000 times a year, you do see these out-of-hospital sudden cardiac arrests in young athletes. Sports involved you know, 39% of the time if people are under the age of 18. It's still involved about 13% of the time as you get older. If you get older than that, you know, 35 years and older, then you have uh, related concerns due to coronary arteries, which can become blocked or occluded, leading to a heart attack. That's not what this is here. So the sudden cardiac arrest does happen, rare, but, but these are the sorts of, things, sorts of numbers that we're talking about. Sanjay, too, just remind us, as we're talking about cardiac arrest, important to note this isn't a heart attack. In fact, there are two different things. A heart attack can lead to cardiac arrest, but this is not what has happened here as far as. Yeah. So let me let me let me let me just show you because this comes up quite a bit. When we talk about a heart attack, there are these blood vessels that are on top of the heart over here called the coronary blood vessels. They actually supply blood flow to the heart. So when you have a heart attack, you think of that more like a circulation problem. One of these arteries becomes blocked, heart muscle tissue dies, and that can lead to the the heart attack. With a sudden cardiac arrest, it usually seemingly comes out of nowhere. You might have an abnormality with some of the muscles of the heart, or there could be an electrical problem with the heart. The electrical uh, issues of the heart allow the, the chambers of the heart to beat in a coordinated fashion. If that gets thrown off for some reason, then uh, you, you, you might have a sudden cardiac arrest. Someone goes pulseless, they become unconscious. Oftentimes they require defibrillation and getting to a hospital, as seems to have happened with Bronnie. So recovery, what does that look like, Sanjay? Can he get back to where he was? Well, that, that is a big question. I mean, I, I think the, the biggest sort of good news in all this was how quickly he got out of the ICU. Mm-hmm. Uh, you remember, remember with DeMar Hamlin, it was a few days before he got out of the ICU. We have heard of players who have been in the ICU even longer from sudden cardiac arrest and were able to return to play. But I think it's just, it's too speculative to say at this point, what exactly caused this underlying problem? Is it gonna be something that is of concern in the future? How are they going to address that? So I think it's, it's early to say it's possible. We have heard of players, even college players, who, who, who then have returned and gone on to play in the NBA. But I think we'll probably have a better answer to that question over the next several days. Sanjay, I also hope that you can do a little fact checking for us. I, I actually, there's a part of me that doesn't want to elevate I know what you're this yeah. Elon Musk Plus. questioning whether there could be a risk of myocarditis mm. from a COVID vaccination that could have led to cardiac arrest. I doubt Elon Musk has any information from the doctor or the family about what actually happened here. Is there any chance, based on what we know from science, again, that there would be any sort of a link? 
Look, I, I, I think this is going to be very low down on the list. I don't think it's an unfair question, but I think in terms of just giving you some context here, we do know that myocarditis can occur uh, after uh, vaccination and in, in most likely in, in adolescent men, adolescent males, so around his age group. But when I say rare, we're talking about hundreds of cases out of millions of people. So when you do the math, 0.007% chance of actually developing myocarditis. But keep in mind as well that the vast majority of those cases were pretty mild, uh, did, not, did not actually lead to any kind of significant medical problem. And if people developed myocarditis, it typically was within several days after the second shot of a vaccine. So is it, is it a possibility? It's really rare. Cardiomyopathy, far more likely than myocarditis. And again, keep in mind, there were thousands of cases of, of sudden cardiac arrest going back to, you know, 2015, well before vaccinations were out there. And also the virus itself could raise potential issues um, with your heart in some cases more than a vaccine. Sanjay, always appreciate it. Good to see you, my friend. Thanks. You Thank you. So the Federal Reserve will wrap up its two-day policy meeting later today. And of course, the big question this morning is, will it end with another interest rate hike? And the Marine veteran who was returned in a Russian prisoner swap injured while fighting in Ukraine, what this means potentially for any other Americans detained in Russia. So later today, we're expecting the Fed to announce another interest rate hike after a pause last month. This would be the 11th increase since March of last year. It would also take the benchmark borrowing rate to its highest level in more than 22 years. And the Fed signaled last month this might not be the last one. Our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, is here with more. What do you think? Uh, 25 basis points, another rate hike. And, you know, for everyone watching at home, that means, you know, it's going to cost more to borrow money. And that's been the tune of the last year, a year and change, right? Uh, it'll be more on your credit cards, more to buy a new car, more to more for your mortgage. So that's what we're doing here. And the Fed is doing this because they're trying to kill inflation. Inflation, um, you know, down to 3% now, still too high for the Fed's uh, comfort. So we're expecting another rate hike. I think what's really important is what the Fed chief says about September. Are they still, there, there have been so many rate hikes, you guys, I can't even get them all on the same, <laughs> on the same bar graph anymore, right? Um, so this has just been a relentless a campaign to get inflation under control. We now have inflation. Finally, consumer inflation is growing more slowly than wages. So for people at home, that means your paychecks aren't, the, the, the gains in your paycheck aren't being eaten up by what you spend on, on goods and services. But still, this is still a problem for the Fed. So I think, um, you know, I'm really going to be listening to what the Fed chief says about September and whether they, there might have to be another rate hike even after this one to really, really slay that inflation dragon. And the bank deal overnight, yeah, California? There was this, yeah, bank, uh, bank of California buying PacWest. This, I think, injects some regional st some stability into the regional banks. You can see PacWest shares uh, popping there uh, overnight. But this is what the company says. The combined company will have the strength and market position to support the banking needs of small and medium-sized businesses in California and to capitalize on the opportunities created for stronger financial institutions in the wake of the recent banking turmoil. This is not unexpected that you would see some of these. This is not a huge deal when you look at the overall size of a lot of these banks, but it shows you that there are still uh, mergers and combinations happening just so that everyone's big enough um, in these, this higher interest rate environment to survive. All right. Thank you. Nice Appreciate to see it. you guys. You too.
Uh, this morning, Trevor Reed is recovering after being injured while fighting in Ukraine. The former U.S. Marine was, of course, wrongfully detained in Russia for nearly three years before being released in a prisoner swap in April of last year. A source telling CNN he was transported to a hospital in Kiev and then evacuated to Germany for medical care. Joining us now from the Pentagon, CNN national security reporter Natasha Bertrand. So, um, Natasha, what do we know this morning about what he was doing in Ukraine and sort of where he was do we have much information? We still really don't know much, Erica. All we know at this point is that he traveled to Ukraine at some point in the last several weeks to a month and that he was injured there while he was fighting. Uh, it is unclear who he was fighting with and when he actually arrived there. Um, but he was transported to a hospital in Kiev after he was injured. And then he was actually evacuated by an NGO to a military hospital, an American military hospital in Germany. The U.S. government is stressing at this point that they really had nothing to do with any of this, that Trevor Reed was there fighting of his own volition and that he was not operating on behalf of the U.S. government. The, the government has emphasized here that this is exactly why they are urging American citizens not to travel to Ukraine at all, let alone, of course, to participate in the fighting. Now, we know that many Americans, many people around the world who are not a part of the Ukrainian military have traveled there since the start of the war to help Ukrainian forces uh, fight against the Russians. And Trevor Reed, of course, was held prisoner by the Russians, wrongfully detained uh, for nearly three years before the Biden administration managed to get him out as part of a prisoner swap. But still, the U.S. is saying, look, this could actually jeopardize uh, potentially hostage or ongoing uh, negotiations with the Russians to try to get wrongfully detained Americans out of Russia. And they are saying that these two issues, Trevor Reed fighting in Ukraine and those ongoing diplomatic negotiations with the Russians need to be treated wholly separately uh, because they are not in any way related. So we'll see how this continues to play out. And of course, hopefully get more of an update on Trevor Reed's condition at this point, Erica. Yeah, absolutely. Natasha, Natasha appreciate it. Thank you. Well, some parts of the ocean off the coast of Florida are measuring at 100 degrees, over 100 degrees. That's right. That's about as hot as a hot tub. Our Bill Weir is live in Cartagena, Colombia. Bill. Poppy, while it feels good to us to plunge into the bathtub warm Caribbean, it is devastating for almost all forms of marine life. We have a live report on the implications as we head into the two hottest summers yet ahead. Stay with us. An intense heat wave continuing to expand from the plains to the Midwest and the Northeast. Places like right here in New York City, also Washington, D.C., are going to approach 100 degrees in the next few days. Arizona officials reporting at least 570 hospital visits for heat-related illnesses in the last week after continued 110-plus temps in Phoenix for 25 straight days. In Nevada, the Clark County Coroner's Office says there were at least 16 heat-related deaths Las Vegas seeing 10 straight days with highs above 110. Meantime, water's off the coast of Florida. Waters have become as hot as a hot tub. A buoy in Keys Manatee Bay measured the water temp there over 101 degrees on Monday night. If that reading holds, it's the hottest sea surface temperature ever recorded on the planet. Oof. For comparison, hot tubs are usually set between 100 and 102 degrees. Joining us now from Cartagena, Colombia, CNN Chief Climate Correspondent Bill we are Bill. Good morning. 
Good morning, Poppy. As pleasant as it might feel if you're a beachgoer dipping into these waters these days, it is devastating for marine life. And if you've been sweltering on land, you get a sense of what so many different sea creatures have been dealing with really for the last couple of decades now. This is the result of all that heat trapping pollution built up in the atmosphere. And now it is coming to fore in a most undeniable way. Uh, this is the Caribbean Sea. We're on the walled city of Cartagena here in Colombia. And Florida is due north that way where the those temperatures triple digits, which is just from marine scientists, is mind boggling. They're already seeing some reef communities, some corals reach 100% bleaching, 100% mortality. Uh, who knows how much of Florida's reef system can actually survive this? And that goes well beyond just something pretty to look at if you're a snorkeler or a scuba diver. Uh, reef systems are the cradles of the ocean. That's where so much sea life is, is born and begins uh, right now. So everybody in that industry, in the marine industry, in the fisheries industry, industry is bracing because yet we have another couple months which are going to be even hotter. So yeah, as you point out, bracing when we think about all that. Um, you're there in Cartagena, Colombia. Uh, we, you do get the best assignments. Uh, yes. Sometimes they may be depressing, but they're still kind of kind of amazing. What is it that you're what is it that you're working on down there? Well, we're doing a documentary for the whole story uh, on whales, on new science about these amazing allies we have in the climate fight. You can look at some pictures. We spent some time with a biologist named uh, Natalia Botero Acosta, who spent years down here taking skin samples, little biopsy samples of their blubber to check hormones, to check maternity rates, the health of the population, to try to understand as they migrate from way down in Antarctica to eat, to come up to these balmy waters uh, to give birth and have calves right now. And so we talked about not just her work around the whales at this time, but these villages that she works in. These are substance fisher uh, folks here. They depend solely on the sea, both for whale washing and fishing. And now we're reaching a triple whammy with this marine heat wave. Take a listen to her. The impacts are really broad and really severe, like for fishing, for biodiversity. It's really good fishing for, you know, the first half of the year, maybe March, April, May, where the sardine migration, but not so much at this time. So if you add on El Nino and climate change and all these problems on top of that, then definitely something that, you know, is uncertain and it's scary for a lot of us. Bill, we're also seeing these alarming headlines that in just a few years, by 2025, a key ocean current could end. Why does that matter? Well, this is known as the AMOC, uh, and it's a big triangular sort of a conveyor belt that moves warm water from down here up to Maine, up to Canada, and it creates so many of the weather systems around the Atlantic. We've seen it weakening as a result of Greenland melting. It has to do with salinity, how much salt is in the water. Well, there's a lot more fresh water shedding off of the glaciers in the land of Greenland, so they're worried that this could break down. The, the latest study says it could happen as early as 2025, but as late as 2090. And there's a huge uncertainty as to when we hit that tipping point. Mm. But all the science points to we're reaching a cliff right now. And we have a couple of graphics that are much more important in the near term to think about. Both the temperatures of the North Atlantic, where you can see the current year is off the charts going up. Mm -hmm and then sea ice down at the bottom of the world, where it's supposed to be winter, where sea ice is going down at an equally startling pace right now. And again, friends, we haven't even gotten into the two hottest months of the year. Yeah, brace, brace ourselves. Bill, appreciate it as always. Thank you. 
this just in, Israel's Supreme Court saying now it will not issue an injunction to temporarily block this controversial law that strips the court of its oversight power, oversight over the government. We're going to fill you in on those breaking developments right ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this just in, Israel's Supreme Court announcing it will not block that newly passed law that would restrict its power. CNN's Hadass Gold is joining us now live from Jerusalem with these updates. So Hadass, what does this mean? So what this means is that there will not be that emergency injunction, that emergency freeze on the law that several groups had asked the Supreme Court to do. But they will be hearing seven separate petitions on this law starting in September. This is after the court's recess. And actually, the Supreme Court president and other senior justices were on a trip to Germany when these petitions were filed, and they cut that trip short. It was an official trip. They cut that trip short to rush back to Israel in order to hear these petitions. But what we're hearing right now, no emergency injunction. This means that this will now be heard fully. This is setting up a major legal battle here because this was an amendment to the basic a basic law in Israel. Israel has no written constitution. The basic laws essentially make up a semi-constitution as well as Supreme Court precedent. The court will be ruling essentially on its own powers. And the Supreme Court has discussed basic laws in the past, but it has never ruled to nullify them. So this will be a really fascinating legal battle. But what this also means now, this law is now in force. It's official it is legal, and that means the government can act on it. Now, one of the one of the things that the government may choose to do is to actually, and this is being rumored right now, fire the attorney general. The attorney general here is a little different than the U.S. They're more of an independent legal advisor, but the current attorney general has clashed with the government. She has criticized the judicial overhaul. And she is overseeing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's corruption trial, all the charges of which I should say he has denied. But all those things together, there is some reporting and some feelings that that might be one of their moves that would have been much harder to do before this law passed. Now, it could be much easier to fire that attorney general. Wow. Hadass, it really, really is. And a big clash ahead in September. Thank you very much. Behind-the-scenes legal drama playing out as Hunter Biden gets ready to plead guilty in court today. Plus, Bronny James out of the ICU after suffering a cardiac arrest during basketball practice. Just ahead, we'll speak with one of the doctors who treated Damar Hamlin after his cardiac arrest on the football field earlier this year. One top of the hour, 8 a.m. here on the East Coast, 5 a.m. out west. We're glad you're with us. And we begin in a Delaware courtroom this morning where the president's son, Hunter Biden, prepares to plead guilty to tax crimes today. House Republicans are trying to block this contentious plea agreement. We'll break it down with our political and legal analysts. Plus, LeBron James' son, Bronnie, recovering this morning after collapsing and suffering cardiac arrest during basketball practice. We're going to speak with a cardiologist who treated Buffalo Bills safety Damar Hamlin after his heart stopped on the field. And the extreme heat wave is spreading across America with more than 100 million people under alerts from coast to coast. It is cooking the ocean, literally wiping out coral reefs in the Florida Keys. We'll talk to a shark expert about the unfolding crisis. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. There's a lot of news to get to this hour. Here are the developing stories right now. In just hours, the president's son, Hunter Biden, will walk into a federal courtroom and plead guilty to tax crimes as a part of a contentious deal with prosecutors. Meanwhile, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy seems to be warming up to an impeachment inquiry into President Biden pushed by the fringes of his party. 
more of this continues to unravel, it rises to the level of impeachment inquiry. This, of course, comes as we are also waiting on a potential third indictment for Donald Trump connected to trying to overturn the 2020 election. And as we've learned, the special counsel's office has spoken with two more key witnesses in that investigation. Former Trump administration officials Chris Krebs, who is a head of cybersecurity at the Department of Homeland Security, and Trump's acting deputy attorney general Richard Donahue, who had this to say, you may recall, at the January 6th hearings. You also noted that Mr. Rosen said to Mr. Trump, quote, DOJ can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election. How, how did the president respond to that, sir? He responded very quickly and said, essentially, uh, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm just asking you to do is just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. And this just in, Rudy Giuliani conceding in a new court filing that he made defamatory statements about two Atlanta area election workers. Our crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polance, joins us now. Good morning. So let's talk about what Giuliani is saying and why it matters. Well, Giuliani is really trying to tread a line here legally that is quite complicated. And the way that he's doing it uh, is that he's saying in court, after being sued for defamation by two Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, who say that the statements he made about them really hurt them in a lot of ways. He's saying that, yes, he concedes that he made the statements about them, that those statements were false and defamatory. But he's saying it so that he can get on to other parts of this lawsuit and still wants to argue that what he was saying about the election in Georgia after the 2020 vote, about vote fraud there, uh, about these election workers, that that is constitutionally protected speech, and also uh, that he shouldn't have to pay any damages to these women uh, because what he was saying specifically wasn't damaging to them. So this is a short filing from him, but it's trying to get him out of some of the accountability in this lawsuit that has just piled up around him uh, because not just that this lawsuit has pressed on to a point that has been really risky for Giuliani, it also is a lawsuit that a judge is quite mad at him uh, about because the Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss keep saying that he hasn't turned over all of the evidence that he has. He hasn't searched for all of the records that he has thoroughly. And so he was in some hot water over that with the judge. And so he's making this filing now to try and divorce himself uh, from a lot of that those issues that are going on. But whether this is going to be accepted by the judge, how these two women are going to respond to this, whether it would end the case, that is all a major question here. And also what criminal investigators might see uh, in his statement here that he's conceding that he's making these false statements about these women, that is also going to be a very big question going forward. It certainly is. Caitlin Polance, thank you for the reporting. Ellie Honig is back with us, along with CNN political commentator and former special advisor to President Obama, Van Jones. Good to have you both here at the table this morning. So let's pick up where Caitlin left off. And we played this last hour, but just for the folks at home, I want to remind them what we heard from Ruby Freeman, from Shea Moss, about how their lives were changed. Take a listen. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security all because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay. I don't want to go anywhere. I second guess everything that I do. Um, 
It's affected my life in a, in a major way, in every way, all because of lies. So Giuliani saying, sure, I made some statements, but, 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 yeah. I will not concede that those statements, right, were defamatory. I, I won't concede that they really led to this horror that was detailed there. And also, by the way, it was protected right. as free speech. Does this work? So, first of all, this was some of the most memorable and I think searing testimony that we saw last year during those January 6th committee hearings. I mean, these women were accused by Rudy Giuliani and others of committing crimes, election fraud crimes. They did nothing wrong. To the contrary, they did their jobs as civil servants. They're admirable people and their lives were torn apart as they detailed. Now, they sued Rudy Giuliani for defamation. He is now making the remarkable concession. Yes, I lied about them, which you almost never see, I don't maybe never see in a defamation case because usually that's the whole ballgame. And what he's trying to do here is limit his exposure by saying, yes, I lied to them. However, first of all, either they weren't damaged, we just heard the testimony, their lives were torn apart, or other people are to blame for the damages that were done to them. We don't know who he's going to blame for causing that harm to them. And the other question, the other point that he's going to argue is this was constitutionally protected political speech. You have a lot of leeway to make political speech. You can engage in hyperbole, you can say things that are outrageous, but you cannot make knowingly false statements as Rudy's now conceding that he did. I'm so struck by the fact that, Van, what we're seeing now in this, and I wonder if we'll see more of, is vindication for the victims of the lies. This is about prosecuting individuals and investigating them, but at the same time, you're seeing... Yeah. Well, I mean, you, the way our country works is that regular people, grandmas, baseball coaches, decide... They're going to get up very, very early on a Tuesday morning and help their neighbors vote. Uh, it's the biggest volunteer program in the country in, in some ways, certainly the most important one. And the idea you could do that and then have the, you know, America's mayor, uh, the hero of 9-11, tell your neighbors, this person stole the election. This person is a criminal. This person is an enemy of democracy. Uh, it's, it's shocking to anybody. And then his defense is, so what? Yeah. <laughs> so what? <laughs> Yeah. I did it, and so what? And so, you know, my hope uh, is that, you know, uh, the, the judge looks at this for what it is, an admission that she, uh, he was at least the first domino and the biggest domino in a series of events that hurt this woman and, and, and her family, and she gets some kind of justice. Um, as all of this is playing out, too, we have you know, people anticipating there could be an indictment when it comes to the special counsel's investigation into January 6th. And as we've learned, we know that Rudy Giuliani has spent time with the special counsel. We've also now learned that Chris Krebs and Richard Donahue also sat down with the special counsel. Start putting all of these pieces together for us, Ellie. Sort of where do we stand this morning? Yeah, so this is really important new information that Chris Krebs and Richard Donahue have spoken with the special counsel. Rudy Giuliani is probably the least credible person I can think of. <laughs> Richard Donahue is about the most credible person you can think of. I don't know him personally. He's a longtime federal prosecutor. He has served under both administrations. He did the right thing here. And that note that he took, there's a moment he testified about where he's on the phone with Donald Trump on a conference call, and he takes a contemporaneous note. As it's being said, he jots it down where Trump says, just you DOJ, just say the election was corrupt and me and the Republican Congress will do the rest. That, to me, is one of the most incriminating pieces of evidence that we know of. And so the fact that Jack Smith is talking to him, I think, is really significant. Hunter Biden is going to walk into a courtroom in Delaware, aside from the optics and the fact that this is a first in American history to see a president's child walk into a courtroom and plead guilty to crimes. The Republican chair of the House Ways and Means Committee is saying, wait, judge, don't green stamp this. 
we want you to take into consideration this new testimony from last week of two IRS whistleblowers. Uh, look, it's extraordinary that they're wanting to step into another uh, you know, domain of government to do it. Look, this uh, Hunter Biden, he's being faced a, a Trump-appointed prosecutor. He's going in front of a Trump-appointed judge. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what more these people want in terms of uh, you know, uh, having some confidence in what's going, what's going on. The idea of this whistleblower, I think it's tough because in general, I like whistleblowers and I want whistleblowers to have protection to be taken seriously. Two of them. Um, mm -hmm. they, so you have two of them. Uh, that needs to be taken seriously by everybody. I'm not partisan enough to say, well, you know, I, you know I'm on a different team, so I don't want to hear from them. But these, uh, you know, our government has a way of functioning. Uh, we have three independent branches of government. Uh, it would be highly unusual and very shocking if you were going to court and all of a sudden some congressperson said, well, hold on a second, stop your case. I want to do something over here. That's not how our system works and it shouldn't work that way. Yeah, uh, this case is, go well, here's what to watch for today. Will the judge accept Hunter Biden's plea deal as is? The judge does not have to, as we discussed before, Erica. The vast majority of times the judge does. If the judge accepts this, then I think that takes the temperature down. If the judge, by some, and, and she can, rejects this, that's going to raise the temperature on this a lot. Watch, watch what the Republican congressmen well, then, do that. And, and I agree with Van. The whistleblowers absolutely need to be heard here. Uh, and they're not necessarily saying the same thing that David Weiss and Merrick Garland are saying. Merrick Garland and David Weiss are saying David Weiss had full authority over this case. The whistleblowers are saying, yes, but certain investigative avenues were cut off. Not that's taken. the question. Yeah, and that's an important, important distinction to point out. Before I let you go, we've been hearing more from Speaker McCarthy talking about the potential for an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. We also have reporting from our fantastic colleagues up there on the Hill that there has been more of a push among top Republicans to go after Joe Biden. If you're going to do an impeachment inquiry or impeachment proceedings of some sort, go for the top dog. Mm -hmm. What do you make of this move here? Republicans say, hey, we're just following the facts. Uh, well, I, I think they might notice that when uh, their guy, Trump, gets in trouble, whether it's impeachment, uh, whether it's indictment, his approval goes way up. And so just from a, as a political matter, as a political matter, uh, going after Joe Biden and trying to impeach Joe Biden will have the same effect for Joe Biden. His numbers will go up. Mm -hmm. The party will rally to him. Uh, and, you know, the, the difference that I, from the Trump impeachments versus this, this will be just completely pulled out of nowhere. Uh, even the, the impeachment uh, uh, efforts against his cabinet members will be coming out of nowhere. But I would just say as a political matter, uh, pretty foolish. And there's a reason that, that Kevin McCarthy is not in a big rush to do this. It will distract his Congress from doing anything that Americans care about. It will drive Joe Biden's numbers up. And also a lot of people will have to testify under oath, who we would love to see testify under oath. A lot of their people have to testify under oath, which we would love. So I don't think it's going to go forward. I think it's just a, much to do about nothing. Van Jones, Ellie Honing, appreciate it. Thank you both. LeBron James's 18-year-old son is now out of the intensive care unit. He is in stable condition this morning. Bronny James went into cardiac arrest during basketball practice on Monday at USC. That's according to his family. He is gearing up for his freshman season with the Trojans. Well wishes pouring in for him from the sports world, including from Buffalo Bills safety, DeMar Hamlin, who wrote in part, here for you guys, just like you have been for me my entire process. Hamlin, of course, suffered cardiac arrest himself. In the middle of a Monday night football game earlier this year, he was hospitalized for more than a week. Joining us now is the head of the cardiology team that treated Hamlin, the chief of cardiology at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, Dr. Charles Hadamar. Thank you, doctor, for being with us. This is different, right? 
this is not, Bronnie did not suffer a, a, a tremendous impact and this happened, but they're both young men at the, you would think, at the prime of their health. What are your questions this morning? The, um, every, every cardiac arrest is different and every cardiac arrest is similar. Um, what I mean by that is the initial event of the heart stopping needs to be treated and aggressively approached by bystanders and by medical personnel. And really and, and truly, there, today is a good day. A day. Congratulations to the staff, to the, the people at USC who evidently were able to resuscitate Ronnie James immediately. That's that's fantastic. That that's that's step one. But every cardiac arrest is indifferent, and the next steps are to figure out why, if possible, to figure out why this happened. Um. Understanding that we know you're, you're not treating him, you can't see his medical records. But when we when we pull back a little bit, it feels like in some ways we're hearing more about cardiac arrest, about heart issues in young athletes, whether it be uh, that freak accident that would happen with Demar Hamlin, what we're seeing in terms of collapsing at practice. Is there something that parents should be aware of, especially parents of active young athletes? Are there further concerns? Absolutely. Um, I would say we don't completely understand why young, healthy athletes have cardiac arrest. It's not an epidemic. It's been something that's that's been around for a long time. Um, it may be it may be changing. And again, for every cardiac arrest, there's multiple potential reasons for it. So what should parents do? Um, number one, the most important step is screening. Um, any young person involved in significant athletics should be have a good health screening process prior to the season, prior to their uh, release to play. And a good a good medical screening is the first step. That does identify maybe one percent of of athletes who have something significant in their background or in their exam that makes them at higher risk. But there is a certain degree of unpredictability with this as well. Um, that so far we have not had the science, the technology to identify beforehand who might be at higher risk. Doctor, the question now, if Bronny and his family decide he wants to go back to play, maybe even this season, obviously he was a widely discussed to be a, a, a key NFL, uh, NBA draft pick potentially. Can, can you get to the level you were athletically after something like this without putting your health at risk? I mean, obviously, I don't know the details, but I can tell you um, people do recover. And mm -hmm. young people in general have an excellent chance of full recovery, particularly if the situation is that they're resuscitated effectively. I can't emphasize that enough, whether it's bystander CPR, AEDs, or medical personnel on hand um, quickly. The prompt resuscitation is the first and major, major step in terms of predicting long-term recovery. So, again, it's like good news. Yeah, it sounds like they did that. Dr. Charles Hanemer, thank you for this, but really also for what you did to save Damar Hamlin and, and all your patients. We appreciate it. Well, well thank you. We're, we're united on this. This yeah. is a great, a great thing. Thank you. Thank you.
A federal judge blocking the Biden administration's controversial asylum policy. It's yet another legal setback for the White House. The last Democratic Congresswoman Veronica Escobar of Texas about that crisis at the border just ahead. And breaking news, take a look at this. These are live pictures of a crane in midtown Manhattan, less than 10 blocks from where we are. It has caught on fire. It has partially collapsed. More on that ahead. We are following breaking news here in New York City. So these pictures coming to us out of Midtown Manhattan, which is you know not too far from where we are, about 10 blocks away. You see that large crane there on top of a high-rise building. We see some smoke there. CNN's Bryn Gingrass is here with us. So Bryn, I know you're learning a little bit more about what happened here. Partial collapse? Partial collapse. And it's concerning for this area of Manhattan. Of course, we're in Midtown. That's at the foot of the, or the mouth of the Lincoln Tunnel. So we're into this rush hour traffic yeah. time. People trying to get to work. People walking on the street. Right now, sources are telling me initially we, there's one firefighter and one person in stable condition. Now it's unclear. Are those critical injuries in stable condition? Are those serious? What, what are we talking here? That's unclear at this moment from sources. When I was calling people, the mayor's office is sending someone right there. The fire department sending uh, people there to gather information. Mm -hmm. So this is very much in the initial phase. Um, but this is an area, like you said, Midtown Manhattan, a crane. This is an area that is very well, you know, being developed There's right now. There's a lot of cranes, here. a lot yeah. of constructions in this area. If you're not familiar with the Hudson Yards uh, development that's going on around here, and it appears that this crane was doing some work and partially possibly caught fire and then collapsed. Okay. And, you know, I've seen some videos where it's hitting another building and falling on the street, but it has collapsed and falling onto a midtown Manhattan street. That's a big deal. So okay. it's very initial what we're hearing as far as injuries. It's possible those numbers will go up. We're going to continue to follow. Do this. we know really quickly before I let you go, you said this is near the entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel. Yes. Which, so this is on the west side, obviously, of the city, not too far, as you point out, from, we are, yes. from where we are here. Do we know how high up this crane was? How many don't, stories? I don't know how many, how many stories, but okay. if you're, again, familiar with Hudson Yards, these buildings are all skyscrapers yes. that they're building here. So it does appear to be working on those skyscrapers. And, you know, just to make that note of the Lincoln Tunnel, this is going to be a headache for people trying to get into the city uh, at this time right now. And, and again, the more serious thing is the fact that this is a very busy area of Manhattan at this hour. So yeah. uh, the concern is, are there injuries uh, to anyone who responded to that area, like a firefight firefighters, uh, to those working in that area, and then also just people just commuting to work. So we're going to continue to stay on this one. And I'm just hearing my ear, too. We do have some pictures where it appears that they may be, you know, trying to fight this from nearby buildings, perhaps, because as you point out, not just a lot of construction, but it's yeah. also fairly congested. There are a lot of high buildings around here. Um, we're seeing some more of these pictures here. I will check in with you um, as you learn more. Brent, appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Poppy? A ruling that could have major implications at the southern border. A federal judge has blocked President Biden's controversial asylum policy. It's a big blow to the White House, which learned, which leaned rather on the measure to drive down those border crossings. The Biden administration imposed the system more than two months ago, and it barred migrants from seeking asylum if they cross the border illegally or if they failed to seek asylum in another country while en route to the United States, the federal government will appeal this ruling. But it comes as the Justice Department is suing the state of Texas over using those floating barriers in the Rio Grande River. Governor Greg Abbott argues the barriers are intended to deter migrants from crossing. Joining us now is Democratic Congresswoman Veronica Escobar of Texas. She represents El Paso, which has really become the epicenter of the border crisis. She is also on the Judiciary Committee and a Biden campaign national co-chair. It is good to have you, Congresswoman. Look, you were critical 
of the Biden administration doing this a few months ago. You called it a step backward. You said it was choosing to limit asylum against the laws of the United States. So do you agree with this judge that has ruled against the White House? Well, first, Poppy, I, I have to tell you, the, the other part of my statement was an acknowledgement that the Biden administration is doing everything it possibly can to do two things. First, to deter people from using human trafficking organizations because the cartels are in charge of that now. And secondly, to create legal pathways to encourage people to use the legal pathways, which are safer uh, and help keep people away from those human traffickers. So the Biden administration is doing the best that it can, given that Congress has not acted on addressing our broken immigration system in 37 years. Um, so while I would love to see uh, a different policy, really it's on Congress. And today, for example, in the House Judiciary Committee, we're having Secretary Mayorkas. Mm -hmm. And instead of my Republican colleagues talking about uh, a better path, a way to be helpful and do our job as legislators. Mm -hmm. They're focused on impeaching Secretary well, Mayorkas. Some have called for that, for sure. I will note some of your Republican colleagues have also called for legislation like Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez, who's put forth the Higher Act, one thing that you have supported. We'll get more to what he said in a moment, but just so I can be clear, you didn't want this policy in place. Now a judge is saying it's illegal. Do you want to see it gone or do you want to see it remain? Well, I want to see Congress act. I know, but I mean, the, the, I, we all do, Congresswoman, but this is yeah. really impacting your district. So I'm wondering yeah. if you want it gone or you want it to remain. I, I would like to see us come up with a policy together that would not just open up legal pathways, but also that would deter migrants from using the cartels. This is the best that the Biden administration has come up with. It really is on Congress. So while I'm uncomfortable with the policy, mm -hmm. the only alternative is for Congress to legislate. And I put forth put forth my own bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform bill that would address yes. all of these issues. Yes, you absolutely did. And that is one of the questions that's called the Dignity Act. And that puts forward some other policies. I'd like your response to what Republican congressman in your neighboring district, Tony Gonzalez, told us on Monday. This is about a separate issue. This is about those buoys that are floating put there by Governor Abbott in, in the Rio Grande. Here's what he said about them. I support the buoys because they are a deterrent in preventing people from entering the country illegally. But we have to be we have to be compassionate in, in how we handle anyone. I, I don't want to see them get in the river at all. And I hope when they see these buoys, they turn around. Uh, but but I also don't want to see any law enforcement not hand out water, not treat people with with humanity. But you have this. It's always somebody else's fault but mine. And it's always somebody else that's going to solve it. He's uncomfortable with them, but he also is, I think, making the same point that you're making. Congress repeatedly fails to act to address this issue. And because of that repeated failure of your body as a whole, do you blame the Biden administration for trying to act unilaterally? And in the same token, do you blame Governor Greg Abbott for saying, I have the authority to do this? He believes in the Texas Constitution. I don't know if that's going to hold up in court, but he's saying this. We have to do this because Congress has failed. 
Well, let me be clear. The buoys are horrific. Um, they are, and, and they are not a deterrent. Anyone who believes that buoys or concertina wire are somehow a deterrent uh, to, for desperate people who are seeking asylum obviously is ignoring the reality on the ground. We've, we've heard reports from the Texas Department of Public Safety from a whistleblower who talked about women and children being caught up in that concertina wire. Uh, and, and we've seen on video that the buoys uh, don't, don't essentially deter people. And, and also, let's be clear, Governor Abbott does not have jurisdiction when it comes to immigration. That is a federal responsibility. And as I mentioned, the, the Biden administration is doing everything possible as the executive in the absence of congressional action. I would note the Department of Justice has brought this suit, interestingly, on environmental grounds, not on immigration grounds, saying you're violating the statute, Section uh, 33 of Code 403. The question is going to be up to a judge, right? Are they in violation of that right. or not? I, I wonder what you think about Beto O'Rourke. He has an op-ed in uh, the New York Times this morning. Obviously, he held your seat for six years before you. And he's saying that the president should come in and remove these buoys unilaterally. He says this is the president's chance to show America that a humane approach is not only the right thing to do, it's the best way to establish safety at our southern border. Do, do you want to see the federal government come in here, swoop in and take them out? I would love to see federal personnel sent to remove everything that is on federal property, but I am grateful to the administration. Uh, the DOJ is acting, taking uh, the governor to court. That is the process, uh, and I support that process. Okay, finally, you obviously mentioned sit on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, Secretary Mayorkas will be in front of you and your colleagues this morning answering questions. Republicans have said that he is displayed a dereliction of duty. There have been some calls to impeach him. Do you think there are things that Secretary Mayorkas could have done better? You know, the, the Biden administration and Secretary Mayorkas inherited a broken system. And, and for context, the uh, increasing numbers of migrants arriving at our nation's southern border began under the Trump administration. The only drop in, in crossings happened during COVID when the, the globe shut down, basically. And those numbers went back up a couple of months later, long before uh, the presidential election, even longer before before President Biden was inaugurated. This is all a distraction tactic uh, to, to, so that Republicans have something to give the American public to focus on, and it's Kevin McCarthy's reward to his most extreme members of the Republican Party. The border crossings, illegal border crossings on the southern border spiked even more after Biden took office. We've seen them down 42% in June since his policy was put in place, but now it may may go away. We'll watch the hearing closely, and we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much. Erica. Bring a lot of important ground there, Poppy. Uh, just ahead, the U.S. women's national team takes the field for their second World Cup game, and this is a big one. Why? Well, you'll just have to stick around to find out. We are also continuing to cover the breaking news out of Midtown Manhattan this morning. Two people injured after a crane caught fire, partially collapsed. Details ahead. We are following this breaking news here in New York City. These are live images for you. Uh, you can see here, this is, this is what's left of a large crane. Two people we know are injured after the top part of that crane 
toppled. And we actually have video of the moment of collapse. There was a fire. Look at this here. Wow. You see it strike part of a nearby building, swing. And then ultimately, if you keep watching, you can see it fall there to the ground. This was posted on Twitter by Jimmy Faring. CNN's Bryn Gingras has been following this since we got news of it. I know you've been working your sources. Yeah. Uh, what more do we know about what happened here? This is so scary. I mean, it's terrifying to see that video. We can play it again just to kind of get an idea of how intense this is. I mean, this is, again, an area of Manhattan, which is very busy for two reasons. One, obviously, the time of day that is people are going to work, but also this is near the mouth of the Lincoln Tunnel. So a lot of traffic is flooding into around this area. It's about 10 blocks from where we are sitting mm -hmm. at this very moment. It's an area in Hudson Yards, if you're familiar with the development that's happening here. We're seeing a lot of cranes at this moment. But this is this is incredible to, to, to see this. Uh, as Erica just narrated there for you, it hits that side of the building and then ultimately collapse on 10th Avenue of New York City here in Midtown. And what I'm learning from sources is just right now, it appears there's two injuries. One is of a firefighter and one is of a civilian. Now, when we say civilian, it's unclear yet uh, from my sources, is it someone who was on the ground? Is it someone who was in a car? Is it someone who uh, was operating this craner on that construction site? So that is very unclear. I also don't quite know the extent of those injuries. I was just told stable condition from my sources. So uh, if you're familiar, stable isn't really condition. just means that they're you're not you know getting worse or better. They're, but it's unclear if it's it serious, is it critical? So again, at this point, the mayor's office, the FDNY, the Department of Buildings with New York City, they're all sort of flooding to this area, which is a very intense uh, scene right now with yeah. all these departments sort of trying to figure out exactly how this happened, if there's more injuries, uh, and it's very possible there might will be because of the busyness of this hour. Yeah, absolutely. And we have, a, we have a team heading down there as well. And you do point out, and I think that video really shows us so well, um, how congested these buildings are, how yes. tall they are. There yes. is so much construction going on around here. To see this happen, to see that crane fall, this is a big fear for a lot of people who walk around any big city with a lot of construction. Right. So obviously a lot of questions there, and too. And the congestion hitting another building on the opposite side of the yeah. street is pretty incredible. All right, Brynn, appreciate the update. Thank yep. you. Well, the U.S. women's soccer team will take to the pitch again tonight when they take on the Netherlands. It's a rematch of the 2019 final, which, of course, U.S. won. Joining us now, CNN contributor, host of the Carrie Champion show. Carrie Champion, so great to just watch the women dominate again and again and again. They've conceded tough match tonight against the Netherlands, but they bested them nine times. They've taken them on the last nine times. What will we see tonight? You know what? Tonight we're going to see, I, I believe, more of the same. I think in the opener, a lot of us who are huge fans of the women's team noticed that it was, Poppy, just a bit clunky. They were trying to find their way in terms of what they were going to do out there on the field. And that is because of we've this has been a huge storyline. 14 of the 23 team roster, they're all brand new. They're newbies. This is a brand new <clears throat> event. And while we have nine women returning, if you will, it still makes um, sense that it didn't quite flow as well, although we won. I think tonight we will see a much more sophisticated attack. I think we will see a little bit more gelling. I think uh, the nerves are gone for the ladies who haven't had the opportunity to appear in their World Cup. This was their first, and now I think they've settled. So we'll see something look a, a little more cohesive tonight, if you will, uh, from the women, and I definitely think it'll be a win. Uh, looking forward to the U.S. team meeting this morning with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who told Fox Sports, we're watching the rest of the world catch up to the U.S. women's dominance. It's quite a statement, and I think a lot of people would agree. 
well, the women have been easily uh, the most talented. And if, in fact, this three-peat happens, we've talked about this as well, right, on this very show, that that will be the very first time that has ever happened on the men's side or on the women's mm -hmm. side. Imagine being um, so dominant that there would be absolutely no one in the world, literally World Cup, that would fear, that can uh, deal with you. I will say this, though. Uh, I, I am cautiously optimistic that this is already a foregone conclusion, that our women are going to win. But I, I know um, that the other countries just aren't as afraid of us for various mm. reasons, right? Again, the lack of experience, and we don't have all of our favorite players there in terms <clears throat> of some of our really important playmakers due to injuries. Um, but this fresh new crop, Give, give us hope. They really, really do. And I think after our very first performance, the other countries started to look around and say, okay, the U.S. is still the most talented. I mean, it's something special to brag about. And it yeah. always, for me, leads to the girl power that I mm -hmm. love to talk about. Amen. I, I was literally thinking girl power in my head right before you said that. I am with you 100%. 100%. We do want to ask you about Bronnie James and just how the sports world is responding this morning. Such a talented young basketball player. In stable condition, what are you hearing? Um, from what I am hearing, especially this morning, I'm hearing that LeBron James and his wife Savannah, as parents, obviously are feeling somewhat better. But you all have to understand, and, I, and I'm sure that we've done enough research on this, uh, this is rare, but yet there's something that is seem, seemingly common about it because we've seen so many different young athletes uh, suffer cardiac arrest. It makes news, right? We talked about DeMar Hamlin earlier in the year. We watched on Monday Night Football as that happened. Not exactly the same case, but we had someone uh, in 2020, a Florida State basketball player, uh, suffered cardiac arrest during a game, uh, and he was able to recover, and they called it athlete's heart. And while, you know, experts say it affects to maybe 100 and 100, 150 young athletes a year. Uh, one athlete is too many, and you both are parents. You can speak to that. Like, what's next for yeah. Bronny James is the big mental hurdle of getting into the mindset of that he can get competitive again. Once they find out what was the cause of this cardiac arrest, he then has to start an entirely different mental process. And it doesn't matter that his father is LeBron James. Uh, it doesn't matter that his name is LeBron James Jr. What matters is, is that can he get himself up and ready to participate in, and compete competitively? Because I know for a moment they thought that this dream that he had of playing with his dad might be overshadowed by this. And I feel like the big part now is the mental aspect of getting back in the mindset of, am I okay? Can yeah. I compete? Can I go out there and do what I want to do and live this dream? Yeah, for sure. We're all rooting for him. Carrie and the women, obviously, as they <laughs> yes. take on the Netherlands. Yeah. Thank you, Carrie yes. Champion. Good to have yes. you. Coming up from the White House to the Dog House, another one of President Biden's dogs involved in several biting incidents at the White House. Will Commander the German Shepherd have to leave like his brother Major? As you get your morning started, we're glad you're with us. Here are the five things to know. Less than an hour from now, Hunter Biden will appear in court. He is expected to plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors after striking a deal with federal prosecutors to resolve a felony gun charge. As part of the agreement, the Justice Department has agreed to recommend a sentence of probation. 
James, uh, LeBron James' son, Ronnie, is recovering this morning after suffering a cardiac arrest. He was rushed to the hospital by ambulance after losing consciousness during basketball practice at the University of Southern California. His family says he is now in stable condition and out of the ICU. The first family's 22-month-old German Shepherd commander has been involved in 10 biting incidents at the White House and in Delaware. Secret Service emails show that one incident required an officer to go to the hospital. Another of Biden's dogs, Major, was previously moved out of the White House after several biting incidents. Extreme heat fueling wildfires around the world. Right now, 33 large wildfires are burning in the U.S. Officials say they have scorched more than 200,000 acres across nine states, while in Italy, firefighters are battling 10 wildfires blamed for four deaths. And temperatures are expected to dip slightly in the coming days, but that's before climbing again toward the weekend. The Mega Millions jackpot growing to a whopping $910 million. After no tickets matched all six numbers last night, the lump sum cash option just 464 million. The next drawing takes place Friday night. That's five things to notice. Start your morning. More on these stories all day at CNN and CNN.com. Don't forget to download the Five Things podcast every morning. Go to CNN.com slash five things. You can also find it wherever you get your podcasts. So you may have heard of Cocaine Bear. No, 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 don't eat that. Don't eat that. Let's see what kind of effect that has on us. Have you heard of cocaine shark, though? For decades. <laughs> it's not Trying going off the rails it, yet. It We're going to hold it together for at least 13 more minutes. Uh, rumors <laughs> of sharks feeding off of cocaine from failed drug operations have spread throughout the fishing community. But what would the real impact be if they were, in fact, feasting on cocaine? Well, our next guest made it his mission to find out. You notice how she's swimming? Yeah, it looks like she's slightly on the one side. Almost like she's weighted down. She's not quite level. Now that is unusual. Could be a past injury, or maybe a chemical imbalance. Either way, something to note for sure. Something to note for sure. Joining us now is shark expert, marine biologist, conservationist, the man responsible for cocaine shark. Part of Discovery Channel's Shark Week, which, of course, we are part of the same parent company. Uh, Tom, the blowfish herd, joining us now. All right, Mr. Blowfish. Um, so as we look at all of this, what inspired you? You wanted to conduct this experiment here, try to understand what was really happening. Why did you want to know? Well, it all started when uh, a production company came to me with with the name Cocaine Shark and, and said, look, you know, we've got this idea. Is it too insane. And I looked at it and I thought, you know what, this is genius wrapped up in goodness all over. <laughs> so while we are looking at this much you know, bigger uh, event of large sharks coming across bales of cocaine, what uh, we're now looking at in the scientific community are actually the effects of pharmaceuticals that we're taking, legal or illegal, that are making their ways down here through our streams, through our wastewater, and into the ocean. So this was a really good kind of poster child to get people talking about and get people interested in the effects of, you know, human pharmaceuticals entering the seas. Tom, you didn't actually use cocaine, right? No, no, we didn't. No, uh, my my parole officer was very clear about that. He said, no, no, Charlie for you, Mr. Blowfish, sir. So, uh, no, 
We didn't. Um, the uh, I, I've said before on this, the idea of uh, a shark coming across one of these bales of cocaine. I believe in this particular area, the Gulf of Mexico, uh, you know, you've got South Central America. I don't need to explain the geography to you guys. You get it. It, it really is a unique hotspot worldwide for this drug running. And the bales do go over very, very regularly. And when you consider the number of sharks there, the number of different species, sharks are intelligent animals. They want to understand their environment. They want to interact with it, but they don't have hands to interact with anything. They've only got their mouth. So, you know, a bale floating on the water, if they want to test it, see what it is, they're going to get a face full of uh, of cocaine and i think that this event could have happened multiple times but if you know if a tree falls in a forest does it make a noise mm. if we're not there watching the shark eat the bale at that particular moment in time we cannot accurately say yes that is a cocaine shark so instead we had to kind of look for the the hallmarks the kind of the uh, the come down of a cocaine shark instead mm -hmm. It is it is fascinating. You know, as we're as we're talking about this and we're talking about the oceans, we've been talking a lot this morning, frankly, over the last several days about the temperature of the ocean. And we're seeing it rise, how detrimental that can be over 100 degrees in the Florida Keys, what it's doing to the coral reefs, bleaching them, how that impacts the ecosystem. What is the effect on sharks? As the temperature rises, it's going to move sharks out of their historic grounds. Uh, areas which were previously inaccessible because of the temperature will now be accessible. So we'd expect to see shark species in areas where historically we haven't seen them before. And another big issue is as the temperature of the seawater rises, the oxygen concentration goes down. So when you think, you know, a shark and certainly these wonderful big charismatic sharks, the tigers, the hammerheads, that kind of thing, you know, they're big, powerful animals. They're, you know, they're sports cars of the sea. So they need a lot of oxygen. They need a lot of fuel going in. So if the waters start becoming stagnant, they're going to leave those areas. And when you lose top predators from an ecosystem, invariably the ecosystem suffers. We will be watching. That is a guarantee uh, to the series. We really appreciate it. Tom Hirsch, thank you very much. Discovery Sharks, Discovery Shark Week, I should say, episodes of Cocaine Sharks airs tonight. 10 p.m. Discovery, obviously part of our parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. We are continuing to cover this breaking news out of Midtown Manhattan. Two people injured after a crane caught fire and partially collapsed. We have new details ahead. We are continuing to cover this breaking news out of New York City. So if you're just joining us, what we're following is a crane, crane collapse here in New York City, what we know is that there are at least two injuries, and this event, this fire, has actually been upgraded now to a five-alarm fire. We know that the two injured, one of them is with the FDNY. The other, we're told, uh, our Bryn Gin Grass reporting from her, her sources, is a civilian. She's been told they're both in stable condition, but not a lot of information Beyond that, um, this is, as you can see, an area with a lot of tall buildings. This is an area that's only about 10 blocks from our studios here in New York City on the west side of New York near Hudson Yards, uh, not too far uh, as well from Madison Square Garden, right there by the mouth of the Lincoln Tunnel. This crane caught fire and then a massive chunk of it fell off. I'll tell you the moment when this train collapsed. It is stunning to see, because this is during rush hour. Oh. Watch this. And it swings across the street. 
and appears to hit a vacant construction site on another skyscraper that was posted on Twitio by a, a, a bystander, Jimmy Faring. We can tell you this is during rush hours in the middle of New York City. This is right next to Times Square. I think you cannot get a more busy part of New York City at this time of day. Yeah, it, it really is. We're going to continue to follow this. We do have our crews on the way there on the ground. So stay with CNN. We will continue to keep you updated. And thank you for starting your morning with us. We'll see you back here tomorrow morning. CNN New Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.